Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 14th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. While Frank is on assignment with robots, it's my pleasure to welcome a very special guest co-host, Wendy Mariner, the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health, uh, where she also serves as a professor in the Center of Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights, is a professor in the Department of Health Law, Policy, and Management, and also, in her spare time, directs the JDMPH dual degree program at BU School of Public Health. Wendy, you've been a frequent pod guest. Deep, dark, welcome to the other side of the microphone. I am not a robot. <laughs> Thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to join you. This is a wonderful series, and there is no way I can replace Frank, but I'm going to enjoy having a chat. We have two excellent guests. Uh, Scott Burris is professor of law at Temple University's James E. Beasley School of Law where he directs the Center for Public Health Law Research. He's also a professor in Temple School of Public Health. He's the author of over 200 books, book chapters, articles, and reports on issues including urban health, discrimination against people with HIV and other disabilities, HIV policy, research ethics, and the health effects of criminal law and drug policy. Also joining us is economist Abraham Gutman, uh, also at Temple Law School, and the project coordinator for the Center for Public Health Law Research's Five Essential Public Health Law Services Project and the Policies for Action Research Hub. Well, Scott, uh, welcome back to the pod to you, and Ava, a, a warm welcome to you. It was great to see both of you at the Northeastern Law School Diseases of Despair Conference a few weeks ago. And of course, it was our great pleasure to host Scott at our school uh, back in February. Today, we're going to talk about housing and health. Uh, there are so many connections between the two from the health determinism of housing to the rhetoric surrounding both. How many times today do we do we hear the phrases a right to either good inexpensive healthcare or a right to good inexpensive housing? Let us start with public housing and the Federal Fair Housing Act and its state counterparts. This is a podcast that uh, is primarily about health law and health policy. So uh, maybe we could start, uh, Scott, with some sort of uh, gentle explanation of uh, what the FHA is, uh, its role, and how at sort of, a, you know, maybe a 5,000 foot level, fair housing, public housing, and health law and public health law uh, intersect. Oh, well, that's a small, small task. I think I can get that done in the next couple of, couple of hours. This is the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Fair Housing Act. And I think it's fair to say that when it was passed, a lot of people thought that its purpose was to um, desegregate American housing um, along the same lines that it had been hoped Brown versus Board of Education would desegregate American schools. And I think for many of the same reasons, um, the fundamental recognition that separate ain't equal and that part of being a fair and just society means that that we're all in it together right in our schools and neighborhoods. Certainly, um, Mitt Romney's dad, George, um, who had been governor of Michigan uh, and at one time presidential candidate, and it was was at that time Richard Nixon's uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, um, thought that this meant um, a desegregation mandate. The law has language in it, not just about preventing um, active discrimination in housing, but affirmatively furthering fair housing. Um, and fair housing, I think, 
state being in its most capacious form, um, a state in which uh, the color of your skin um, does not determine where you live. Um, The promise of the Fair Housing Act, uh, we have to say, has not really been kept. Uh, Discrimination remains, I'm sorry, segregation remains a characteristic of of life in 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 many, if not most, of Americans America's urban areas, um, and segregation in housing uh, supports and interacts with segregation in schools to make sure that um, the vision of Brown um, is a vision that we have yet to fulfill in this country. I think it might be helpful for some of our listeners who may not be entirely uh, familiar with all of the details, and I don't mean all of the details of the Fair Housing Act and what it's asking aspirations were. The aspirations, I think you've summarized very nicely. What we don't have is the details and what concerns so many of us, of course, is why it isn't working. Well, that, yes. So that's a that's a big question. The I think there are two main mechanisms of effect in the Fair Housing Act. The first is the traditional anti-discrimination mechanism, which is kind of premised on the belief that at least some of the problem of segregation results from deliberate actions by people with malign um, racial intent, or at least with a sufficient insensitivity to the impact of decision, the racial impact of decisions or the disparate impact of decisions that 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 we're prepared to say that 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 that's discrimination. Um, so. The Fair Housing Act allows people to file claims if they feel they have suffered discrimination in any housing-related um, part, any part of the housing process. Um, we get about well, we get what, what is it out about thirty thousand a year um, these days. Um, actual complaints of discrimination to HUD and fair housing agencies. Um, there is also mechanisms through which, as with other civil rights laws, the government itself can pursue cases, major cases, um, seek impact litigation, and, and broad-scale change. So we have that whole traditional civil rights discrimination litigation side. Um, But the Fair Housing Act also had this more substantial remedial side, which I think we'll talk about a lot today, which is very important. Um, And that was the idea that HUD had a mission of affirmatively furthering fair housing. And HUD has lots of tools besides litigation, um, or along with litigation, the complement litigation, the biggest one probably being the fact that it controls a lot of money um, that goes to, um, and otherwise can influence the flow of federal dollars that go towards housing um, in our in our, in our cities and counties and regions. So the, there have been times in HUD's history, um, including early on with, with George Romney and later in the Obama administration, when um, the agency was definitely trying to use that muscle um, to get cities to figure out where they had segregation problems, why they had those segregation problems, and to launch uh, affirmative action to um, deal with those segregation problems. Um, in the Obama administration, um, there was a, 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 a new version, a new rule, the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, which required, um, uh, which which bolstered the traditional requirement that cities do some kind of self-assessment, um, that recipients of federal funds do a self-assessment, figure out where their segregation problems were rooted, and take action to rip out those roots. We didn't get very far in that process um, before the last election, and uh, current HUD secretary has postponed the effect. He had they, there was some concern they might at least eliminate the rule or try and repeal the rule. But at the moment, they've just postponed for a few years the point at which cities will have to add complete, will have had to complete their, their assessments and, and create action plans. To, to Wendy's point about the uh, relative uh, uh, disappointment uh, we've had with uh, the Fair Housing Act, is that true also about 
state fair housing acts? In other words, are there any sort of glimmers of light out there of some state uh, legislation that seems to be doing a better job? Well, I th- I'd have to say, first of all, that this is largely an evidence-free zone. We have not had uh, the, the, a sufficient level of, of evaluation or what you might even consider sort of descriptive legal epidemiology of um, what goes on in this in this fair housing system. Um, so like I said, we had 28,000 complaints of housing discrimination in 2016, the last year for which we have data, 91% of which were in the in the rental market. Um, and that's th- that number is been stable for about uh, at least at least 10, 15 years. Um, there is also, but but the question is, what's the actual rate of discrimination? Is 28,000 pretty much all the c- cases in which someone suffered discrimination and they went right to HUD? Or is that, you know, as we probably should expect, only a fraction of the cases of discrimination? Uh, HUD and, and, and private, you know, not-for-profit NGO, um, non-governmental agencies that do housing work, do testing studies. And, um, you know, they find, uh, every time they do one of those studies, they find racial steering um, and different treatment. Um, that's just consistent. So we know that there's, that's another measure. We don't know that that doesn't tell us how much discrimination it tells us it can be found anywhere. Um, when HUD or the Just Department of Justice, people and other litigants look through the records of uh, big banks, we find persistent racial bias in lending. Um, there was a study that found, that looked at 31 million mortgage records in 61 metro areas in 2015 and 2016 and found that black applicants were more likely to be denied alone in nearly all those cities. Uh, so, you know, we see there's a lot of discrimination. We see there's a fairly small number of complaints. This is what this makes me worry. I, I, in the past, I did a, a, a multi-year evaluation of the implementation of the ADA through the EEOC. And what we found there was that the vast majority of complaints that were filed never got actual processing. They just sort of sat around until people gave up. And that was because there weren't sufficient resources to, to pursue complaints. You know, we don't have that kind of study of HUD, but I have no particular reason to believe that they're any better um, at dealing with complaints than other anti-discrimination discrimination agencies. Um, you know, we we have studies that the RWJF just did a study that found that I think it was three quarters of black people reported an experience of housing discrimination. Um, 28,000 complaints doesn't seem like enough if three quarters of black people are reporting that they suffer housing discrimination. Um, you know, so my feeling is this, at least in terms of the the HUD litigation side, while they win in, and, and other not-for-profit litigants win important cases and the, the fact that the Supreme Court has 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 allowed disparate impact claims is really important for winning big cases. Um, one of the reasons why the, the Fair Housing Act probably hasn't had a big effect on discrimination is that depending upon individuals and the individual claim system as our primary remedy against discrimination just is insufficient. Not enough people claim, and of those who claim, not enough people win, and of those who win, not enough win enough to have any deterrent effect. Um, and as I see it, the persistence of discrimination, um, which can be found anytime you do a testing study shows that realtors and landlords are not deterred and they're not terribly worried about discrimination and probably they're that's the rational approach um, because there's just not that much chance they'll get caught or severely punished. So Scott, that raises I think an important question, which is we as lawyers think of crafting laws and implementing regulations to try and deter and prevent discrimination like this. So how do we construct laws that cannot be ignored that will be enforced. 
And that takes me back to the your earlier mention of mortgages and financing. When this is taking place in uh, an economic context in which people can't get the mortgages, and perhaps even deeper, um, where there are people with low enough incomes that they can't get a mortgage or can't make the rent consistently. It seems to be deeply tied into the economic structure of employment and income that may both inspire discrimination and make and, and make it very difficult for people with low incomes and particularly people of color or disability uh, or national origin that are not born in the United States, perhaps to you know be disadvantaged in being able to access any kind of, of housing that would enable them to live a decent life. Well, you said it. Um, one of the themes of our work um, is that this is a this is you know in Don Berwick's word, you know, we have a system that is perfectly designed to produce the result we see. Um, discrimination is just part of the housing problem. Um, the cost where where we build new affordable housing, how much affordable housing we build is part of the problem. You know, so so we don't have a policy lever that drives um, money for um, new affordable housing either to the level it needs to get to, but also to the places where the new housing would serve integration purposes. Um, in fact, you know, pretty much most of the incentives, the way that the, the low-income housing tax credit system is set up, are towards building more housing in places where you already have concentrations of, 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 of lower-income people and usually also um, some level of segregation. Um, how we have you know, traditionally dealt with um, the with housing finance um, continues to have impact. So, you know, the legacy of redlining is still there in terms of lower housing prices. Um, but, you know, for poor people um, to buy, um, it's pretty difficult um, because of, you know, the, the fact that they just don't have the income to get a mortgage. But out there in the world are people will, perfectly willing to let them rent to own. You know, contracts of sale are back, um, as far as we can tell, doing very nicely. And that's a terribly predatory and exploitive way for people to buy housing. So you've got, you've got sort of predation going on. Um, you know, we have um, we have not found a way in many cities to properly enforce housing codes um, so that um, there's a kind of ecology of, of, of um, landlords in some cities, and Matthew Desmond describes this brilliantly in his book Evicted, talking about Milwaukee, where the landlords have gotten into a business model where they're just going to let, let property decay, buy it cheap, rent it, rent it dear, and don't put any money into it. Um, which is not even necessarily a, the best business model, but it's out there. And you know, if I step back and say, well, where's the law in this? Um, the problem is that, that most of our, our regulatory systems are failing. The Fair Housing Act is a failing regulatory system. You know, It doesn't have enough resources. We don't have enough enforcement to get deterrence. We don't have enough enforcement to, you know, either through the size of the penalties or through the likelihood of being caught. Um, you know, when it comes to, to housing code enforcement, we have cities that are basically unable to enforce even basic standards in terms of lead um, and mold. And again, you know, partly because those re- those those organizations are starved of resources or enough inspectors. There's not enough of a political commitment to make that kind of enforcement happen. Um, and I think overall in the housing world, we've just kind of gotten, at least as in, in housing law, a lot of people have gotten used to pointing to the fact that the laws are on the books 
and kind of conveniently forgotten or ignored the fact that, that we don't have any indication that they work. I mean, the best example of this is the is the wonderful implied warranty of habitability, which you know makes it a an, a, a, an implied clause in any lease that the remedy that the house is going to be in a habitable condition and supposedly protects tenants. When this was adopted in all 50 states 40, 50 years ago, this was greeted in the legal community, at least, as a revolution in landlord-tenant law. When we look today, when researchers look today, and they don't look too often, but a couple of good people have done this, look today, it doesn't appear that the implied warranty of habitability has any actual use in day-to-day housing litigation. Let's push on the, the lead paint a little bit more, if we may. My wonderful colleague, Florence Roisman, brought to my attention a recent New York Federal District Court case, Page Against NYACHA, involving New York City's Housing Authority's failure to inspect for lead uh, uh, in apartments occupied by young children. And then apparently the Housing Authority actually lying about this to HUD and others. And uh, the uh, the court described this as, quote, the bureaucratic uh, malfeasance described in this lawsuit is appalling. And, quote, this case offers a paradigm of the agency's abject failure to ensure the safety and well-being of its tenants. A moment or two ago, Scott, you talked about lack of resources, but also sort of lack of a will in some of the agencies to get involved in this. Why is it so hard? Those two things go together, right? I mean, if we want to imagine a, an infrastructure of highly professional, competent regulators, you have to imagine a level of resources that's sufficient to reward good people to be there and to support learning and to support uh, innovation and to support uh, people to develop a strong professional identity. Um, you know, of course, that's related to all sorts of things like ending revolving doors and um, making sure that, you know, our, our, our tax base is sufficient to do all that. But, you know, where, where we when, when you look at housing, you see the face of a country that's kind of abandoned the idea that, that government should play a strong role in assuring basic conditions of safety uh, and hygiene to all its people in the places that they live, work and play. There's just no other way to think about it. And each little piece of that failure, like the lack of professionalism, the ennui or, you know, dejectedness or outright corruption or mendacity of regulators, it seems to me ultimately in, in an important way is tied to that. Uh, we've kicked government around for the last 30 years and it's showing the signs. It's bruised, it's battered, um, and it's not moving too well. Um, and now we see people, you know, when you see kids with lead poisoning, kids with asthma living in dangerous places, and the best you can say is, well, at least they're not homeless. You know, if we, if we, if we went after the landlord, they might be homeless. That's a really pathetic picture. And it's really important for us as a country to recognize and see what housing is telling us. Housing is telling us what happens in a Hobbesian world. Um, and it's and it's asking us whether that's the world we want to live in. Well, this is perhaps a, a, a perfect segue to the question about evictions and how renters are being dealt with. You raised it earlier slightly in your concerns about the, the ways in which landlords are um, economically uh, incentivized to to go forward. Um, I My colleague Jonathan Levy here has developed models to evaluate and look at what coalitions of renters can do on the side. So what... Um, what about eviction laws and, and making people homeless, in effect, or having them move from place to place, put their children in different schools for a month or two at a time, 
between homeless shelters and rickety, dilapidated housing on the outskirts of town where they can't get transportation to a job if they have one. I find eviction to be a, a fascinating question from the legal perspective. And again, Matthew Desmond in Evicted shed light as eviction as a cause of poverty. And we see more cities talking about eviction as a problem that they have that is really an epidemic and a crisis in many cities and all, all throughout America and in different cities, different sizes of cities, different areas, even in more rural areas. Um, but we also see that people use the term eviction to mean a lot of different things that aren't necessarily the formal eviction that is captured in the eviction labs data set of 83 million formal eviction notices between 2000 and 2016. So I think the first step to, to, to thinking about eviction in, and how law is related is to think about what do we mean when we say eviction? Because every different type of eviction has a different remedy. So again, tying it um, to housing court enforcement, we see that many, many places don't have any protection except for the supposable implied warranty of habitability. And for a tenant that complains on a landlord because a unit is inhabitable and more than six and a half million of units in America are deemed inadequate by the American Housing Survey. So they have no protection if their landlord retaliates. That would be one kind of eviction of that moment that a landlord decides to, you know, just kick someone out. Another type of eviction is when a landlord continues a month-to-month lease. And legal remedies that allow uh, protections for um against retaliation against a tenant won't necessarily help the uh, the tenant that the landlord decides not to renew their lease one day just because, because the area is gentrifying, because they uh, want a different tenant, because of they have kids that are allowed, or which for every reason that we hear and a, a lot of different um, different reasons that are all, all bad. So those are, um, those are types of eviction that you see this rise of the good cause or just cause eviction laws that can address. But then we have, and, and you alluded to this earlier in the economic system, that there's credit behind all of this. So a lot of times, even if you have the protections, when you go and you fight your eviction, you risk your credit score. You risk, risk having the eviction on your record forever. So maybe it's just better to, to leave, to, to take the informal eviction. And we see again the law being very punitive in a way that maybe doesn't offer enough protection, but the risk is so high that a lot of people prefer to go away from the legal system and the formal system and do things informally, knowing that they're risking homelessness and and involuntary moves, but at least having an opportunity for the future to have credit to maybe find another place. So there have been some suggested sort of process reforms in this space. Um, For example, having legal representation for tenants facing eviction, uh, for clearing records of eviction. Do any of these seem to have any traction as far as you're concerned? Well, there's definitely some things that we can do to make the world a better place, right? I mean, the nuisance eviction laws that, that punish people for calling for emergency help, for example, calling ambulances or calling the police. Well, we can get rid of those. Make sure that you, you can't get evicted because you needed the police. Um, you were beaten by your partner or your kid was sick. We can certainly fiddle with the rules in, in housing courts so that, for example, you can raise a defense uh, of habitability even if your rent is in arrears. Um, we can make it easier for tenants to withhold rent and so on. But I think it's important to recognize when we think of a legalistic solution to this uh, about the Fair Housing Act. We now recognize with the level of eviction and, and informal eviction going on that this is a major social phenomenon. On the, uh, Desmond has compared it for 
for for black women to the effect of incarceration on black men. This is this is big. And to think that that can be solved by individuals getting lawyers and fighting it out in court, you know, I have to say on the evidence base that we have, that's facetious. That's just not going to change things. In a bigger sense, we'd be investing more in a project of justice for poor people in the court system that we believe is part, you know, serves a broader, works within a framework of, of broader social justice and opportunity and so. And, and the problem is whether that that belief in the broader story is is justified. We we've 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 got a problem where there's not enough affordable housing. Where the affordable housing we have is often in places of concentrated poverty that are bad living. Where where poor people are often paying pretty pretty much first class prices for third class housing um, in very tight rental markets. And until we have more good housing in places where there's economic opportunity and educational opportunity and access to credit and all sorts of the things that people need, and it's and it's and we find a way to help people afford it, either by subsidizing the rents or by helping people make more money, helping them at the end of the road when all their all their efforts to stay afloat have failed and they are now facing eviction is really, you know, it's 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 it, it reflects a commitment to, you know, the rule of law and legal representation, but it doesn't constitute a real response to our housing crisis. And if I can push in more on that point that I think is so important. So let's think about the moment that someone has, for example, a broken window in their house and it's really cold. So the landlord refused to fix that. They call license and inspection or whichever department is involved. And then the landlord retaliates with eviction. There, there is a question originally, how is that house not up to code? And why was it up to this power dynamic between a low income tenant and a landlord that might be, you know, a person that does this on the side or a professional hiding behind an LLC, uh, which we don't know how many more apartments they have and how big their apparatus is. So where is the proactive approach to try to just avoid that moment, to avoid the the need of the tenant to be proactive in in the situation where they're so vulnerable and to have proactive code enforcement that will maintain and house as well that tenants don't need to um, expose themselves to retaliation? Well, I think this certainly demonstrates that the the interconnection of all of these issues and certainly the economic basis at, at the bottom. And in fairness, there are some landlords who themselves are in economic straits and uh, may need some attention as well. But I'm, I'm interested to see that our new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development has launched a new initiative, which is called HUD Strong Families. And are, the goal is to assist families to be stronger. Quote, the health of a community starts with the love and support of a family. Parental involvement is essential for the well-being and health of children, and we're going to support our families, says Secretary Ben Carson. Um, This doesn't sound quite like the direction you were talking about uh, for our nation to go, and I wonder if this is just another work requirement, as in um, Kentucky and other states with respect to Medicaid, or a notion that that, that the government is looking at personal responsibility now instead of social responsibility for this housing crisis that is the result of all of these complex structural problems. I don't want to dignify it too much with comment because, you know, clearly the secretary never read Evicted or met, recalls what poor people are like from his own childhood. You know, the Evicted is a story of people working like crazy um, to find a way to stay uh, afloat. The myth that poor people are lazy is a myth that, that the rest of us make up to justify failing to provide the same kind of opportunities that we have. Um, and I I think that's all we can say about it. You're perfectly right. These are structural problems in which people find themselves in impossible circumstances and manage to, you know, 
fight their way through to one extent or another before they're almost inevitably crushed. Um, and that crushing, even if we don't care about the people, it's it's tell. I mean, it's remarkable that our cities, which don't have much money to begin with, are busy both. Um, paying the sheriff who evicts people and then finding emergency housing for the people who just got evicted. <laughs> There's a more efficient way even from from pure a position of pure social calculation. And that has to do with making sure that people don't get evicted. As, as I think you mentioned, Wendy, when you talked through this, I mean, we're talking about cascades of effects. The kids don't go to school or the kids go to a new school um, and they go to new school repeatedly and their education is disrupted and their social bonds are broken and then they, get, they become disruptive and then there's a cost to that and then um, you know they don't get a good education and then there's a cost to that I mean we are throwing public money in some sense and, and, and collective wealth down the tubes every time we um, let a family get evicted instead of finding a way to help that family have the stability of a home on which they can build all sorts of other kinds of stability so Desmond's uh, use of the term eviction epidemic in his book, um, you know, makes me think about other epidemics that we're trying to deal with at the moment and how sometimes public health and other uh, models seem to clash with each other. I mean, I think one that is relatively well known is the the problem of smoking not being permitted in, in uh, is it Section 8 housing? And the impact on those folks, if you don't give them any kind of uh, tobacco cessation help, perhaps relatedly, uh, we're looking at uh, the latest of many addiction crises at the moment and having some kind of uh, drug conviction on your record basically shuts you out of uh, these types of housing. Can you can, can you sort of shake those pieces a little bit together for me and, and explain some of them? Well, well, to me, these exemplify the, the you, you might call it the tragedy of the silos, you know, the excess of specialization in, in our society and certainly in public health. You know, we have tobacco people and we have drug people and we have housing people and we have healthcare system people and, and opioids people and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, each of these problems are big. And if you enter from the sort of problem door, you can spend an entire career trying to get, you know, work your way to the bottom of all the complexity. The problem is all those silos are built on the same basement. You know, that's what we mean by social determinants. And until we start to step back and, and, and try to be generalists, which is what a social determinants perspective ultimately means, you know, we are going to get these moments when somebody gets the idea that the, the most important next thing to do is to go into public housing and make sure that nobody who lives there smokes, even if it means evicting people. Like these people are not seeing the eviction side of things. They're not seeing the lack of housing opportunity side of things. They're not seeing, you know, they, they, apparently they're, I mean, they seem, they must, to give them credit as human beings, assume that that person will be able to live somewhere else. They'll make a choice. You know, not realizing that for a lot of people, getting into public housing was the, you know, the, the life-saving, <laughs> was the life raft they, they, they grabbed. And when we throw them off, they're back among the sharks. Um, this has nothing to do with the, the merits of, of, of trying to reduce smoking. It's got to do with the fact that nobody just smokes. Nobody just uses drugs. 
Um, people who get evicted also have substance abuse problems and they have nutrition problems and so on. And, and these things are the, the capacities and resources and opportunities that people ultimately need to kind of overcome, to avoid or overcome those problems are, are you know, generalized social determinant type capacities. You know, we, and I don't mean that abstract. You need a decent education and that has to be a decent job. And it helps to live in a neighborhood where you're not under constant stress, where people are not being killed around you. Um, it helps to be in a place where you have some modeling of opportunity and social mobility and where there is actually some statistical pro prospect of social mobility. And those are all long-term influences and they're also influences that depend upon social investment, that, things, that they are things that people cannot provide for themselves. And you know, we in public health need to be spokespeople for our and advocates for our particular fixes, but we have to at the same time start to become you know, also better able to understand, articulate, and integrate into our own work what it means to think about the social determinants of health and to think about the system that's producing these individual pathologies and risks. And I think that often, I, at least I tend to think of the government as the entity that is supposed to take that system view, to take the bird's eye view for all the problem, because essentially at the end of the day, it's all come from the same budget that is divided to the different departments or the different programs. So you, you would think that that would be the entity that kind of takes a step back and looks at housing as a whole and not on healthy housing, on fair housing or uh, one silo or only on smoking versus housing or any of the silos that we can create. But then you see, again, look at administration that we find that housing advocates are suing HUD and instead of joining forces with HUD to do different different projects or different things. So it seems like there is needs to be a entity that coordinates. And if we can't have that entity be the government, because there's a secretary that is refusing to take that role inside of housing, and there's a lot of parallels to different ones. And it's a big question. And how do we fill that gap? And who is the right entity or what is the right entity to, to do so? Well, this may be the, the time to consider the health and all policies concept, which in its best manifestation does enable people to see outside Side their own silos and the connections of all the policies that may be specific to public health or lead or um, evictions or crime um, that can connect. It, it's difficult for one agency, obviously, to pu pull it all together. Uh, and in one sense, I worry a little bit when we say, well, there should be an agency that should have more funding to do this, even though I've advocated for that myself. Uh, because that money isn't coming. And so we need to harness other resources and energize other groups, perhaps, to recognize these legal problems that are also based in financial problems and perhaps can develop some solutions that make the connections. Is that an option? I think, uh, well, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I perhaps disagree with the premise uh, of your question in that I actually think sometimes it's good to declare defeat. Like, it's not necessarily good to continue to struggle when you cannot see how you will win. And I think when it comes to the, the level of starving of resources for social investment, we kind of at that point, I don't think we should pretend that there's just a clever regulatory or governance or, you know, uh, uh, um, heuristic way to sort of re-understand this and be more effective. So, you know, I, I, I'm not ruling out just saying this, this can't be fixed. We've got to, we've really got to just go on kind of a sort of strike, um, you might say, and, 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 and focus on the fact that we're, in, we're just in, we've, we've gone, we've hit 
rock bottom. On the other hand, maybe that's not true. So let's think of, you know, I think one of the great things about law and thinking about legal levers is that they just allow so many people to do so many clever things. Um, our problem is not a lack of legal levers so much as a lack of a coordinating mechanism. A lack, and a coordinating mechanism has, you know, can be thought of in regulatory terms, or you might say, uh, you know, very practical terms, like how do we get the people who are building the new housing to be thinking about how what they do fits with what with retaining the old housing? And how do we get both old and new housing to think to be thinking about, you know, how, what we're going to do about gentrification and transportation systems? And how, you know, so in that sense, a health and all policies perspective can be a useful way um, to proceed. Indeed, I think that there is the potential, uh, perhaps in different regulatory hands or governmental hands, executive hands, but there is the potential for the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule to serve this purpose uh, as a as a way to do health and all policies, because it's the only legal mechanism we have um, in most places that 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 invites and, and could be used to require, because there is must potential legal muscle behind this, communities across regions to cooperate to figure out where the roots of their of their problems are and how to deal with them and to implement those solutions. And it would take a vigorous leader at HUD willing to use HUD's legal resources um, to push this, but at least it's it's in, it's legally in theory possible. You know, more broadly and, and tied to it, I think we, we you know, what, what, what I think Richard Rothstein, who wrote a wonderful book about the segregationist roots, the racist roots of our, of, of, of many of our current, really all our current housing policies and housing condition, talks about is the need for a good story. We have got as a society to stop pretending or accepting the idea that somehow, you know, years ago there there was discrimination and we got all these segregated places and poor people pushed away to the margins and living in terrible places. And, and you know, maybe we did something bad in the past, but now that's just the sort of workings of the market. It's just natural. It's just choice. Um, you know, we have to get people to start understanding, for example, that zoning remains... <laughs> the biggest barrier in the country to the spread of affordable housing into racially segregated neighborhoods. Um, you know, that we can't have affordable housing in the burbs until, you know, we eliminate or, or reduce the impact of zoning. That's an active, continuing legal regime that is really bad for affordable housing in many places. So somehow a level of, of recognition um, culturally that, that housing justice and housing injustice are real issues um, and how they're hurting us, I think, is also really important. And, you know, in some ways, we seem to be making some progress on that. Housing is a topic in a way that it hasn't been for, for decades. And I think we have to keep pushing that um, because, uh, you know, we need to get the political will so there are more resources, so that we are using the money we have wisely, so that we're, you know, can consider things like not subsidizing the mortgages of the rich through the mortgage interest tax deduction, and perhaps consider um, subsidizing the rent of the poor and lower middle class through a earned income tax credit tuned for housing costs. Um, there's, <laughs> you know, we, we've got to have change. We cannot just say somehow we will tinker our way through this because we ain't gonna. And that was The Week in Health Law. Or was it the first episode of The Week in Housing Law? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> but I am sure that I need to thank Professors Gutman and Burris uh, for uh, their great work. Tremendous gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you for having us. So you can find our 
love on Twitter at A-B-G-U-T-M-A-N, A-B-G-U-T-M-A-N. And Professor Burris is at Scott Burris, P-H-L-R on Twitter. As for this show, we post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Uh, Wendy is at Wendy Mariner on Twitter. What an awesome hosting job. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you to our guests. It was very important, very timely. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.